2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the words of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Exilic, and I want to welcome you, especially if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, we've been doing a collection of sermons on Paul's second letter to Timothy uh, in a series that we're calling From Embers to a Flame. And uh, for those of you who have been Christian for a long time, at one point or another, we've all experienced uh, the passion in our hearts and the fire for God that we have at times uh, become extinguished or become like a cold ember. And so it's important for us to, to fan that ember back into a flame so that we can be, you know, have passion and, and fire for God. Uh, but it's not only important for us to fan that ember back into a flame, uh, but it's also important to look at why uh, there are times where our hearts do become like a cold ember. And so today I want to talk about some of the outside forces that are out there in our culture that sort of help us forget or have amnesia with who, uh, with who God is. And the way that I want to open this up to talk about these outside forces that cause our faith to become uh, like an ember is to uh, tell you a parable uh, from the late David Foster Wallace, who was once dubbed the next great American author prior to him tragically taking his life. And although Wallace himself was an atheist, he was very sympathetic to religion. And in a very uh, popular commencement speech that he gave some years prior uh, to his death, he opened up with this parable. And if you can show it on the next slide. Uh, excuse some of the language here for those of you that can, that can read this, but uh, basically the idea is that there's an older fish uh, that's swimming past two younger fish. And the older fish asked the two younger fish this question, morning boys, how's the water? And so the two younger fish swim past the older fish. And then at one point, the younger fish says to you know, his or her friend, what's water? And the point of this parable, uh, according to David Foster Wallace, is this. When you're immersed in something long enough, when you're swimming in something long enough, you stop seeing that thing that you're immersed in or that you're swimming in. And so the question that I have for us today as modern people in New York is this. What is that thing that we are so immersed in? What is that thing that we are swimming in that we stop seeing what that thing is? Okay. Now, in Paul and Timothy's context, uh, they were not in a New York City context, but they were in a Greco-Roman context. And the cultural waters that they were swimming in, uh, the, the thing that they were immersed in was Greek philosophy, 
particularly Gnosticism and Platonism. Now, when you hear words like Gnosticism and Platonism, I know that it puts you to sleep faster than NyQuil. But to briefly sum up what Platonism is, it's this idea that the body is bad, soul is good. So the body in many ways is like a prison for the soul, and the soul has to be liberated out of the body. Okay, so that's basically Platonism, and the practical outworkings of Platonism then is this idea that anything physical, material, or with the body is seen as bad, and only the soul is good. So that means you can't get married, can't have sex, can't eat certain kinds of food, can't have certain kinds of drink. And this is the cultural milieu or the cultural waters uh, that Paul and Timothy were swimming in. And so this is why in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. And so, um, so this is why in... in pun intended when I say this, uh, this is one of the reasons why I find other religions semi-unappetizing. Uh, for example, I, truthfully speaking, it would be hard for me to be Mormon because I love a good cup of coffee and you can't have caffeine. I like a, a, a good cup of Earl Grey tea in the winter. I like an ice cold Diet Coke in the summertime. I like a good cigar and scotch and you can't you can't have tobacco. I like Korean barbecue, and I like beef, and so it would be hard for me to be Hindu. I like pork and shellfish, and so it would be hard for me to be Jewish or Muslim. And so th this is why Paul is telling Timothy in his particular context, everything God created, everything God created is good. Uh, and is not to be uh, rejected. And of course, this opens up a can of worms with like, what about cannabis? And then, you know, what if you're addicted or, you know, abuse certain things? And that's another conversation. But you get the point. A failure to enjoy this world is a failure to enjoy God. A failure to enjoy God's creation is a failure to enjoy the creator of all those things. If someone gave you a gift and you rejected that gift, you would be dishonoring them, not honoring them. And so this was Timothy's context. And Gnosticism and Platonism was spreading through the church in Ephesus and it was shipwrecking people's faith. And so in verse 17 to 18, Paul says this, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. And so here Paul mentions two people, uh, Hermeneus and Philetus, and they are saying that the resurrection has already taken place, that the soul is already liberated from the body, and so they're discounting the bodily resurrection of Jesus or our own future resurrection. And so in many ways you can say that the early church was being colonized by Gnosticism and Platonism, and it was spreading like gangrene throughout the church. Now, I Googled gangrene this week because I thought about putting up a picture of gangrene on the screen for us. But after I threw up in my mouth, I decided that it would be a bad idea because gangrene is a flesh-eating bacteria that eats any healthy flesh. And what Paul is saying here is that any bad teaching or corrupt teaching or false teaching like Gnosticism or Platonism is like gangrene that can eat up not healthy flesh but our healthy faith. 
And so the question that I want to pose to us this morning is this. What is the contemporary, modern-day version of Gnosticism or Platonism that is spreading like gangrene in the modern church? What is the thing that we are swimming in and so immersed in that we can't even see it anymore, and yet it is molding us and shaping us a particular way? And I want to make the case to you today that the thing that we are immersed in and the thing that is spreading like gangrene that is even shipwrecking our faith, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, the thing that I would even go as far as to say is colonizing us is our secular culture. A British theologian named Leslie Newbegin talks about three kinds of worlds that have existed throughout history. And they are a pre-Christian world, a Christian world, and a post-Christian world. Now, when Newbegin talks about a pre-Christian world, He's talking about largely Rome before the advent of Christianity. He's talking about Europe, Africa, Asia before the advent of Christianity, which was largely pagan. In Newbegin's context, it was India when he was there in 1936. Okay? The second world that we see is a Christian world that is heavily shaped by Jesus' moral vision for life and his idea of the kingdom of God. Even time itself now revolves around his birth, right? Uh, B.C. and A.D. And so... Christianity also heavily influenced the world, but he's now talking, Newbegin also talks about the third world that we live in, which is a post-Christian world. And it's not this idea that we've totally rejected and abandoned Christianity so much as we are deconstructing it. And so we are still haunted by our Christian past as a nation or, or, or as the West. We still, we still value things like the dignity of women, equality, human rights, social justice, which are all borrowed capital from Christianity. So we're still haunted by our Christian past, but we want the kingdom without the king. We want the virtues of Christianity, but we want to subtract it from the larger narrative of the gospel. And what I want to say as you think about these two worlds is that the Christian world in many ways influenced the pre-Christian world in good ways and bad ways. It influenced the pre-Christian world in good ways in the sense that we offered up the free offer of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, hope, eternal life, and identity that is now built on performance, um, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there were some bad ways that we colonized the pre-Christian world. So for example, in the first century, Jews would tell Gentiles, you got to get circumcised where you can't follow Jesus. You can't eat certain kinds of food or drink certain kinds of drink. So a lot of cultural baggage that was taking place in the first century to make it more contemporary for us when missionaries go to different places in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, they would talk about Christ supremacy, but they would also slip in white supremacy without even knowing it. So showing DVDs and movies of a white Jesus or telling the natives that they can't wear those kinds of clothes, but you have to be more civilized and dressed like us. And so there was a lot of bad colonization that was also taking place. But I want to make the case to you today that the, 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 that the colonization that's happening is not us influencing the culture so much as the culture influencing us. Our secular culture is colonizing us, and we don't even realize it because it's the waters that we swim in. It's the thing that we're immersed in, so we don't see how it's taking place. And a part of the reason for that is because there is no secular Bible, is there? There are no secular Ten Commandments. There are no secular creeds that we confess as a nation. And so within secularism, we just think this is just the way that rational, scientific free thinkers think. This is just the way that things are. 
and, and so it's harder to see because of that. And so I think that if Jesus were here today, what he would tell us is the same thing that he told to the first century Jews when he said, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear all of the different things that are taking place? So this past week, I just, two minutes, I just thought about a few secular commandments, secular creeds or doctrines that we are swimming in and are heavily shaped and formed by without even realizing it. Here they are. First one, be true to yourself. Number two, follow your heart. Number three, you be you. Number four, I create my own meaning. Number five, I can do anything I want with the caveat that I don't hurt or harm others. And that caveat is very important. Number six, they're in a better place or they're looking down on me is another way of putting it. Seven, love is love. Eight, you are what you feel. Number nine, look inside. Number 10, uh, to borrow the words of Rousseau, I'm a good person. Number 11, the goal of life is happiness. Number 12, if you don't agree with me on everything, you hate me and you're my enemy. And number uh, 13, I believe a Finnish princess once said, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. These are, these, these are the secular belief systems. This is the air that we breathe. This is the water that we're swimming in. And the transporters and the mediums that carry these doctrines are the music that we listen to, the movies we watch, the podcasts that we listen to, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, advertisements, our company, our closest group of friends. These are all the different transporters of these messages and they are catechizing us, they're discipling us, they're shaping us, they're molding us, informing us whether you know it or not. We are being inoculated by these secular commandments over and over again. And just as uh, Gnosticism and Platonism was destroying and shipwrecking the faith of many within the church, I believe that our secular colonization is doing the same exact thing to us. We are not influencing the culture. We are being influenced by the culture. And so this is why in verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. That phrase, godless chatter, doesn't just mean gossip, but it's basically entertaining and engaging with beliefs that are harmful to your faith. And so Paul says three things, avoid it, don't indulge in it, or it will make you more and more ungodly. So this is why, for example, um, I have two girls. I don't just let them watch whatever they want to watch, right? I tell them what they can watch and what they can't watch because if I don't shape and form them, our culture will. YouTube will. So I want to I be the one that is discipling them and molding them in the right ways. And so there are filters that we have and things like that. And similarly, we have to be very careful with the things that we consume. There are things that we have to avoid. We have to be careful of indulging in particular kinds of things, or we, our faith will become like Hymenaeus and Philetus in the sense that we will become more and more ungodly. Now, the question that you might ask is this. Well, if these are the cultural waters that we swim in, the air that we breathe. <laughs> we live in New York City. What are we supposed to do? Like, we can't live like the life of an Amish person. Like, how are we supposed to navigate through these secular waters? And what I would say to you is this, I think a good question to ask, well, 
A bad question to ask, I think, is this. Is this wrong? I think a more helpful question to ask is, is this wise? So as you consume particular things, music, media, social, whatever it might be, the people that you hang out with, rather than asking the question, is this wrong? I think a more helpful, nuanced answer as we swim through these cultural uh, waters is the question, is this wise for me to do? Is this healthy for me? Especially when there are so many competing voices that are all around us and we don't know who uh, to listen to. Uh, and uh, one of the, so what I want to do uh, right now is I want to make, um, what I would like to show us is that the reason why I think our secular beliefs can make us more and more ungodly is because it cannot give us what we ultimately need. And so I'm not going to deconstruct all 13 secular creeds that I put up, but what I want to do is just show us a few of the cracks in the secular foundation um, that that sort of uh, show how it can't give us what we really need uh, compared to God. Uh, the, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor once said that secularism is basically this idea that nothing exists outside of time and space like God. And so all we have is just this natural world. And so if you want to find out your origin story, your identity, your meaning, morality, purpose, destiny in life, you have to find it within the walls of this natural universe. Okay, because that's all we have. But the problem is, what if within the walls of the universe we haven't found what we're looking for? And that's the crack that I want to show us. Rick Rubin, uh, former president of Columbia Records, signed Lady Gaga, Beastie Boys, Metallica, LL Cool J at the top of the music world. Rubin says, it's hard to get really depressed until your dreams come true. Once your dreams come true and you realize that you had the, you feel the same way as you did before, then you really get a feeling of hopelessness because you feel like, okay, I have this empty hole in me, but if I get to do this thing, this is gonna fill that hole. And you know, one in a million get to do that thing. And then you realize, oh, I feel exactly the same. Most worldly things tend not to be that's satisfying. And I don't know his religious background, but I'm assuming he's saying this from a, uh, a secular context. And if you stick around exilic long enough, you'll hear quote after quote and story after story that are kind of like this, where someone reaches the mountaintop and they're like, is this it? Is there nothing else? Because the experiment on hedonism is, has failed, the experiment on Wall Street economic growth has failed, the experiment in Silicon Valley has failed, the experiment in Hollywood has failed, materialism has failed. Like, so what else is there for us within the walls of this natural universe? And this is just a hypothesis, but I think this is the reason why politics has become our new religion. Uh, this is the most transcendent thing that is within this natural world, because with politics, you're not just living for yourself anymore, like hedonism. You're trying to live for something that is bigger than yourself. So this is why politics is like the new, you know, the new cachet, and we are now all being forced to pick between the hard left and the hard right. Okay. But when you want the kingdom without the king, when you want the virtues of Christianity and subtract it from the larger narrative of the gospel, uh, this experiment too will fail one day. Tom Holland, who I, uh, I totally forgot was also Spider-Man. This is an Australian historian, uh, so not the same person. Uh, Holland, uh, 
he, I don't know where he is on his spiritual pilgrimage, but he sounds more and more like an agnostic than an atheist. He is not a Christian, though, but he's also very sympathetic to Christianity. And in his, you know, seminal book, Dominion, for those of you who are history buffs, again, keep in mind he's writing this from an atheist agnostic point of view. Holland says, if you live in the West, no book, that is the Bible, has had a greater effect on your life than the Bible. You don't have to read it or even know the first thing about it for that to be true. And so what Holland is saying is much of what we know as right or wrong, uh, morality in other words, uh, much of our sense of you know, where we get a, a, you know, human rights, dignity, social justice, BLM, to the Me Too movement, which is just a recapitulation of Christianity's original sexual revolution that said that men cannot have a double standard what Holland is saying is this is all borrowed capital from Christianity, all the virtues that we have today. Friedrich Nietzsche, my favorite philosopher, nihilist and an atheist, Nietzsche even said another Christian concept has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity, the concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. And so, as we swim in these secular cultural waters, we're immersed in this ocean called secularism, we are continually haunted by all of these Christian relics that are in the ocean. Tim Keller helps us digest Nietzsche when he says that Nietzsche saw the European intelligentsia rejecting Christianity and styling themselves as scientific free thinkers, supposedly living without God. But he argued they still believed in human rights in the equality, in the equal dignity of every person, in the value of the poor and weak, and the necessity of caring and advocating for them all. They still believe that love is a great value and that we should forgive our opponents. They still believed in moral absolutes, that some things are good and some things are evil, and particularly that oppression of the powerless was wrong. But Nietzsche argued all these ideas were unique to Christianity. They did not develop in Eastern cultures, and the Greeks and the Romans found them laughable and incomprehensible when they first heard them. And so this is why Nietzsche would always say, stop acting like you're a Christian when you believe in these kinds of things. And so even as we swim in our cultural waters, uh, we are still haunted by our Christian past. And this is why, personally for me, I think that Christianity does make the most intellectual, emotional, cultural, historical, moral sense. And so Paul says in verse 14 and 15, keep reminding God's people of all these things. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Uh, that phrase, keep reminding or remember or do not forget, is used 230 times in Scripture, over 230 times in Scripture. And it's this idea that we all suffer from a type of spiritual amnesia. And so we have to keep remi uh, reminding ourselves of these things and that these things that Paul is talking about here is the gospel and the implications of the gospel. In other words, we have to continually hit the refresh button on who Jesus is lest we be colonized by the secular culture that we live in. We have to keep hitting the refresh button and let these gospel truths wash over us. So for example, when our culture says, follow your heart, hit the refresh button and remember Jesus says, no, follow me. 
When our culture says you are what you feel, so look inside, hit the refresh button and remember that you are not what you feel, but who you really are is a child of God, regardless of how you feel. When our culture says look inside, remember uh, the word of God says look outside and above yourself. When our culture says you're a good person, hit the refresh button and remember I'm not a good person, but I'm a sinner saved by grace. When our culture says they're in a better place or they're looking down on me, hit the refresh button and remind yourself or remind that person that even within a secular worldview, there is no better place. This is it. But in Christianity, we do have the hope of heaven. We do have a better place. We do have glory waiting for us. When our culture says love is love, hit the refresh button and remind yourself, no, God is love. And the greatest picture of love is the cross. When our culture says the goal of life is happiness, hit the refresh button and remind yourself, no, the goal of life is not happiness. Because when suffering comes, then it takes our happiness away. No, the goal of life, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When our culture says true freedom is the absence of rules and constraints, hit the refresh button and remind yourself that, no, true freedom is not the absence of rules, but the presence of the right rules in our life. And you have to let these gospel truths continually wash over you as we are all inoculated by all of the cultural narratives that we are being colonized with on a daily basis. And the more you let these gospel truths wash over you, you will be able to correctly handle the word of truth. And that phrase, correctly handle, comes from the root word in Greek for ortho, for when we get words like orthodontist. What does an orthodontist do? It straightens, they straighten a uh, crooked teeth. And so the more we let our gospel truths wash over us, the more we'll be able to follow a straight path versus a crooked path. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. My brothers and sisters, you are the only Bible some people will ever read. But what kind of Bible are people reading? Are they reading a secular Bible or the word of God? So let me, just, let me just close and wrap us up with one story. For those of you who have been exilic for a bit, you may have heard this before, but uh, one of my favorite stories is when I was uh, talking to someone in our church, and we had been talking for a little bit, and uh, I just asked them point blank, okay, so what's it going to take? Like, what's it going to take for you to be a Christian? And they turned the tables on me, and they said, well, what is it going to take for you? What would it take for you to abandon your faith? And I was like, oh, that's such, like, that's such a great question. I never thought about that before. And so I said, there are two things that you can do that would cause me to abandon my faith. Number one, find the missing body of Jesus. Because unlike Hymenaeus and Philetus who believed in a spiritual resurrection, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So if you find this missing body, you, you Ocean's Eleven, that thing, you find it somewhere in Egypt or Israel, I'm done. My faith falls apart like a house of cards. But chances are you're not going to find it. So you can do a second thing that will cause me to abandon my faith. Tell me a better story than Christianity. You tell me a better story than Christianity for how I can account for my identity, meaning, purpose, morality, destiny. You tell me a better story and I will be very tempted to abandon my faith. But so far, I haven't found one. 
And quite frankly, evolution, this idea, or Darwinism, the, the idea that I'm a sophisticated chimpanzee, it just doesn't do it for me. Or, or as Voltaire would say, that we are nothing more than grown-up germs. Like that, that doesn't make me want to get up in the morning. It doesn't make me feel exactly special. But the idea that you are made in the image of God, that's a better story. Tell me a better story, and I might be tempted to abandon my faith. But so far, I haven't found something that's better. What kind of life are you living? And is your life telling a better story? Especially if you are the only Bible that people will ever read. Are you influencing culture, or is culture more influencing you? Let's pray together. Lord, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Uh, give us the, the ability uh, to be able to see all of the outside forces, these invisible forces that are inoculating, shaping, catechizing, forming, discipling us, either to be more godly or to be more ungodly. Give us the inner fortitude to avoid things, to indulge things, and to engage in the right things. Or as, or as Philippians would say, help us to think about whatever is noble, true, beautiful, attractive, good, pure. Help us, to, help us to let those things wash over us so we are not colonized uh, by our secular culture. Give us the strength to do that, we pray. In your name I pray. Amen.